Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And today we're talking about Deus Ex, developed by Ion Storm and published by Eidos Interactive. It was released for Windows in the year 2000 and then a little bit later on PS2, where approximately no one played it. <laughs> now this is the 20th anniversary this year of this classic game uh for kind of a standard bearer in the first person shooter but unlike games that had linear levels this game had more of an open world feel and multiple ways to tackle each mission you could be a stealthy spy dude you could be the going guns blazing kind of guy and uh, there was a lot of thought to the level design i think this game stands out as a kind of a watershed moment in game design for that. Yeah, it became the sort of standard bearer for what became the immersive sim genre of games. And uh, I still find it to be really fun even to this day. Um, Aside from that, with so much going on in the world, it's a nice bit of escapism to go into a beloved game of our adolescence into a world where, wait a minute, am I reading this right? A pandemic is ravaging the world, there are riots in the streets, and misinformation spreads like wildfire causing the collapse of government institutions? Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, man. Nice little bit of escapism. Uh, wishful <laughs> escapism. Yeah. Well, you know, one day. You called this an immersive sim. Um, I've not heard that term before. What are some other quick, like, top-of-the-head immersive sim games you'd think of? Sure. I think the initial one that everyone brings up is System Shock and System Shock 2 or sort of some of the mm-hmm. other initial outings for this. Uh, more recently... The Dishonored series by Arcane, as well as their most recent outing, Prey, in 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're all games that have sort of this multiple approaches way of getting things done uh, and sort of uh, have a a lot of world building built into a a shooter with all the options you uh, mentioned above. There's sort of a lineage to these games, and um, a lot of it comes from uh, one guy who... Uh, was the director of this game, War Inspector, who was also uh, responsible for a good deal of System Shock uh, that I just mentioned, as well as Ultima, the Ultima series, Ultima Underworld being another one in that sort of immersive sim sort of lineage. Um, Spectre was laid off from Looking Glass Studios, where he did a lot of that work, and John Romero of Doom fame uh, and Ion Storm at the time offered him basically the chance to make his dream game, which became Deus Ex. Now, just curious if you looked up how long this dream game took to make, because if I remember reading right, it was quite a bit behind schedule and over budget. I was looking at a uh, a GDC talk that uh, War Inspector gave in 2017 about the making of this game, and he said that in September of 1999, they had a game that was just absolute shit. And luckily, their publisher gave them some extra time to sort of polish it up and, and get it done. But I don't know exactly how long the entire thing took. I think it was something along the lines of uh, from like late 96 until 2000 when it released. So, you know, going hmm. on four years, pretty long dev cycle for the time. Oh, yeah. I'd say even these days, four years is pretty generous of a dev cycle from a publisher. Apparently, the original design doc for uh, Deus Ex came in 1997. And um, they wrote about 500 pages of material in pre-production, which is just Ooh. absurd. <laughs> um, they, they ended up cutting a lot of that, needless to say, but I thought that was interesting. We'll definitely link this GDC talk that Spectre gave because it's, it's pretty fascinating if you're into the, the history of this game. Um, as you said, Josh, this, this was sort of a game that they designed to be parts uh, role-playing, first-person shooter, and adventure. And their main sort of design ethos was um, to allow the players to collaborate with the creators on how the story plays out. Mm -hmm. I think this is important to realize that back at this point, um, games weren't as they are now, where this kind of thing where you mix up genres, you mash them up, uh, was less heard of. Games were more siloed in how they did things, and even how stories played out in games were typically more linear, more of a... They tried to go for a cinematic experience rather than really push into what games can do. No, you're you're absolutely right. I think another important thing to realize is nowadays nonlinearity is such a, a buzzword and a thing that people are always striving for in games and the ability to experience things um, 
as directed by the player. Deus Ex is not that. Deus Ex is linear. However, yes. your mode of progressing through that linearity is not um, linear. So <laughs> that's that's an interesting sort of distinction between where this game was back in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, and, and where we are now. Uh, and it's, I think, important to notice that these different ways of go, going through the missions... Um, they all have a very different feel to them, which I think was something unique at the time, um, was that it wasn't like you have a half-assed stealth system bolted onto the guns blazing sort of thing. And yeah, you can do stealth, but really, you're supposed to go in guns blazing. Uh, you could go through the game with these different ways, and it was just as much of a game going one way or another. Yeah, it was equally viable to be a, a stealth person, a hacker person, um, or as you mentioned, the uh, super soldier going in, uh, going in loud, as you say, um, which is funny because you know if you compared this games to its contemporaries in any of those uh, arenas, you know, Thief for Stealth or Baldur's Gate for role playing uh, or Half Life for shooting, it was going to compare unfavorably. <laughs> so uh, the fact that this game was able to blend all of those aspects and. Uh, in my mind, at least, sort of stand shoulder to shoulder, if not sometimes above, on the basis of player choice as its merit, uh, really showed to me like how well-designed uh, all of those things coming together were in, in Deus Ex. The interesting thing about uh, how this game was conceptualized to me is, <laughs> I'm going to keep referencing this GDC talk because I like it so much, but it was basically um, Warren Spector chasing the high he got from playing D&D with his buddies, um, <laughs> which, you know, makes a lot of sense because you're given so much choice and latitude when you're working with a, a player or a human dungeon master in, in D&D. And, um, uh, it, it just, it does come through in the work, the amount of choice you have as a player. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of different options. Uh, you feel like the choices you make, not so much in the narrative of the game, but in how the mechanics play out, uh, they have an impact on the game. And like I said before, like you are going down those different pathways. Another interesting tidbit about this sort of chasing the days or the the D and D high is that his DM was a cyberpunk author Bruce Sterling. So <laughs> uh, funny hmm. how like these creatives all sort of uh, you know grow up together or gravitate towards each other early in life and go their separate ways and do interesting stuff. Uh, that being said, mm -hmm. uh, why don't we talk a bit about this game, which is very cyberpunk themed. The year is 2052. The game follows J.C. Denton, UNATCO agent, who UNATCO being the United Nations Special Terrorism Task Force. He's gained superhuman nanotechnology abilities, and he uses those abilities to uh, sneak or blast his way into different terrorist and then uh, government offices as the conspiracy unravels. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting. The the world sort of posits like, what if every conspiracy theory you um, had ever heard of turns out to be true? From the Illuminati, Majestic Twelve, um, the uh, aliens in Area Fifty One. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty funny. Like from today's day and age, like obviously conspiracy theories have come a long way since two thousand. Uh, not so good of ways <laughs> to be perfectly <laughs> honest, but. Um, it is interesting to, to see sort of these sort of funny uh, parochial uh, conspiracy theories given the, the treatment for this game. It's like a little snapshot of what conspiracy theory dumb was like in the 1990s. You know, you have the idea that FEMA is really here to kind of like take over the uh, country on the slightest pretext. Um, you have your Area 51 aliens things. I mean, like it's... You and me uh, probably don't realize this as much, but aliens didn't really get big until the mid-90s. Like, uh, you didn't have the UFO sightings or the Area 51 ideas or until really X-Files came around and kind of popularized the idea. Then Independence Day, the blockbuster movie, followed shortly on its heels. So this is kind of like taking a look at the 90s culture in a little way. It was kind of fun to take an anthropological look at that. 
Yeah, it is. It, it's very fun to sort of see these uh, conspiracy theories given that treatment and um, explored so thoroughly with this game. I like how much they sort of were able to pack in um, to, you know, some sort of off the beaten path text in the game and random computer terminals and government institutions and stuff like that. Speaking of computer terminals, I will say I was absolutely charmed by the hacking system in this game. Like, uh, <laughs> if you pay attention to some of the text, like uh, um, all the revolutionaries, the terrorists you are first fighting against, then fighting with later on, other computer computer terminals connect to the uh, revolution internet, and all of the majestic twelve computers con- connect to the conspiracy internet. Like, just I don't know. Um, <laughs> some of the things they do for this, it was it was charming to me. Yeah, yeah. That the hacking is a a really fun, interesting way to sort of get some additional flavor for the world. But on top of that, it's a a useful way for you to interact with the game, and it it's actually a primary skill of your your character. Uh, there's a lot of different skills in this game from the useful, like I said, computers, which governs hacking to sort of situational uh, ones like weapons such as pistol, rifle, and low tech um, to really useless ones like swimming and environmental training. <laughs> right. Those ones are cheaper, but not cheap enough to make them worthwhile, especially when you have um, you can get inventory later on that helps you do this or helps you get through these things. There's a bit of inventory management in this game, but... Not to the same level as the Resident Evil series, where it's really built into the DNA of the game, how to manage your inventory. This one, it's like, here's a useless skill that can free up one square on your inventory. Not that exciting. Yeah, it's it's sort of very basic inventory Tetris, like Diablo. And mm-hmm. in that inventory, you can carry everything from weapons to tools, like the multi-tools you use to hack electronics, to lockpicks you can use to open doors and grates and stuff to consumables like you said josh like a a rebreather to help you swim or a biocell to recharge your uh augmentations Mm -hmm. one interesting game design choice i think they made here uh was that you'll notice that lacking from the skill list is stealth um (laughs) even at a game that's a first person shooter and you have not one, but I think four or five different skills for handling the different types of guns and how accurate you will be with those guns. Um, something like stealth doesn't have any skill points that go into it. It's all, it has a decent stealth system. Um, it's a little bit lacking with the lighting technology they had at the time. Like they didn't know how to do the cues for where to go in a level as well as they do these days. Um, but that stealth system is on its own. It's not related to how much you're carrying or what skills you have. Yeah, that's a good call out. I, I didn't even think to realize that one of the major aspects of the game, being stealthy, is not governed by really much of anything. It's sort of a binary, right? Like there are items that will make you invisible and there's a skill you can use to cloak yourself. Um, but, you know, the va- the vast majority, if not all of the stealth I did in, well, in my playthrough, I was just sort of reading the cues of the levels and staying out of sight lines. It's, you're right, it's pretty basic. Like I said, if it was compared to Thief, um, it wouldn't hold up well. <laughs> they tried to do a little bit, like you could throw items to distract the guards or something like that, but it was mostly sight lines and shadows. Also, you can't throw for shit unless you really invest skill points in there. So it's <laughs> not really worth talking about that. You can like drop a bottle next to your character and bring the guards to your position. But I guess the the point of all of these various uh, skills, augmentations, etc., are to uh, allow you to find your different ways through the level. There's pretty much a, oh, they thought of everything, um, way to get through these levels and uh, also with the story uh, the various actions you can take to influence the outcome or what happens as you go through it uh, I really like that aspect of this game the devs seem to despite the fact that it's a linear story uh, thought of a lot of different ways that it can play out within their confines and have slotted in eventualities for whatever actions the player takes mm-hmm uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's what I call the open world levels and the linear levels. Um, the open wo- world ones being where you explore. The linear ones, you're like, I'm infiltrating the base over here. I know where I, what I'm supposed to do and where I'm going. Um, so the level design, even inside those linear levels, is very well done. Um, if you're 
if you're trying to like um if you're a stealthy character there's stealthy ways to get by um there's ways you can hack your way through a lot of levels there's uh ways you can time things right sneak through the vents uh there's a lot of ways to navigate these different levels a lot of secret rooms to find and little hidden passageways yeah and a lot of um options for that are governed by the augmentations you take. We've mentioned these a couple times already, but um, each part of your body uh, is able to be augmented by finding nanomachines in the world and applying them to, to yourself. The interesting thing about this to me is is there's more um, there's more options for this. There's at least two options for every body part, right? So mm-hmm. you uh, can sort of have a build in this game. It's pretty light compared to you know some more crunchy RPGs, but um, you do get to choose which augmentations you apply to your your dentin and uh mm-hmm. uh which ones did you choose any favorites um i was always a fan of the run faster jump higher one uh it allows you to explore a level better it allows you to um really take advantage of the game i think it's one of the ways the game was meant to be played was like you look around these levels you find the different areas and see which ones you can go through Oh, yeah. I pumped up the leg augmentation to the max as well. <clears throat> uh, I blazed around those halls, leaving soldiers in my dust like a sign of the steed in Morrowind. Uh, you know, speed is always <laughs> such an, an underrated aspect in, in RPGs. It just made sense to me. Um, and once you get, like, the uh, completely overpowered Dragon Tooth weapon later on, the uh, leg augmentation allows you to just run up and murk someone before they even notice you're there. Hmm. <laughs> takes a while to see the flash, see the blur coming towards you. Did you do the Dragon's <laughs> Tooth? Were you a melee build? Listen, I, I think this game should have probably taken the Dragon's Tooth away from you because once you get it, you're kind of obligated to use it. It's just so much more powerful than anything else. I pretty much ran with that and my pistol the whole time um, if I needed something ranged. Uh, a pistol with a laser sight is a surprisingly accurate and uh, deadly weapon since you just sort of point point it like a remote at enemies' heads and turn them off. Well, you also start off with um, basic pistol skills, too. That's the only of the weapon skills you start off with, so you have some baseline accuracy with that. Myself, I went with the uh, sniper rifle, because you could actually mm. silence your sniper rifle in this game, and then, although not every level favors it, you can just pick off people from a distance and, you know, move move in smoothly afterwards. Yeah, the 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 silent sniper rifle is also sort of the other OP thing in the game, in my opinion, because it has the capability of being able to take out cameras as well. So um, once you're able to silently take out any camera you want with a sniper rifle round, it's kind of game over for ever being detected, um, by cameras at least. Well, in terms of detection, I will say, though, that it balances the ammo fairly well that... Um, I don't just take out cameras because I see them. Uh, you know, the enemies you're taking down with the ammo, you got to conserve that stuff and find other ways around the cameras, which there always are because the game's not designed to expect you to have that sniper rifle um, superpower. Yeah, that's very true. Um, there's a few other favorite uh, augmentations that, that I uh, had as well. Regeneration was always sort of a overpowered one to to keep in an upgrade it kind of doubled as my rebreather when i didn't have a rebreather and needed to <laughs> survive underwater <laughs> that's funny that's funny that's one way to do it yeah um yeah and, and like i said there's a cloak one too which i thought would be super useful but i was so unstoppable by the time i got it that i didn't really use it i think i used it once after the last time you go to hell's kitchen and all the enemies are going after you only time I remember using it, though. But yeah, the uh, bioenergy is better used to other things. One thing I can think of with inventory management in this game is that it limits the weapons that you can have with you. These tiny tools you can take, the flashlight, the binoculars, the ammo, uh, or I guess ammo doesn't take up space, but like the flares or the uh, lockpicks, you know, they all take up one square, but these guns take up a lot more, especially some of these larger things like the missile launcher or the plasma gun take up, I think, eight squares out of, what do you got, 40 total? So 
having decide choosing to take those weapons with you is a pretty significant investment in the game because um, your inventory, you know, these are tools to deal with different situations you have. Extra armor, extra cloaking, different things to get you out of situations. And if you have the heavier weapons, that limits the adaptability of your character. So I always felt like the heavy weapon build was fairly um, gimped because of that. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you kind of have to just pick your weapon of choice and stick with it. Like, um, I did happen to always keep the Gep gun, the sort of missile launcher, with me because it's also um, your best lockpick in the game as well. <laughs> um. <laughs> High-tech lockpicks. High explosives. Yeah, yeah, you know. Because uh, when you're going in quiet, you got to break the lock sometimes uh, <laughs> with your rocket launcher. I mean, if you don't um, but, have a sniper rifle, then I guess you have no choice but the rocket launcher. <laughs> yeah, so if you if you went sniper rifle with your, your run, I went rocket launcher. Um, but yeah, I uh, as we've been saying, there's a million different ways to get through the levels. Uh, sniper rifle, lockpick, or rocket launcher. It's dealer's choice. Oh, you know, one other weapon I really enjoyed in this game um, was the grenades. You had your explosive grenade, your gas grenade, your EMP grenade. Um, but what made these grenades interesting were they weren't just like toss and blow up kind of things. You could also attach them to the wall. Uh, and then when somebody would come by, then they go off. So this allowed a lot more planning and how to deal with some more close quarters hallway situations, which as a sniper guy, I was always looking for an extra advantage in doing that. And if you're looking... Uh at speedruns of this game or, you know, glitch exploits, etc., you will know that you can use the LAMs, the uh, landmines or uh, proximity mines that Josh just mentioned, to create a ladder uh, that you can just continually jump up a wall on and eventually uh, clip through and out of the levels. Huh. Interesting. Uh, that's used in <laughs> speedruns? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like some quantum physics warping stuff they're trying to do. Yeah, there's some crazy shit going on with uh, speedrunning of this game. Um, always fun to check out. But um, if you're speedrunning Deus Ex, you are probably not going to get to experience one of the hallmarks of, of this game, which is its excellent writing and story, uh, mm -hmm. which I guess we can talk a bit about now. Um, as we mentioned up top, it's sort of a cyberpunk story where you're in a sort of relatively near future not like distant distant future but there's recognizable aspects of society as it is now but everything is corrupt there's massive inequality humans and metahumans exist side by side and there are corporate overlords running the show behind the scenes mm -hmm. i think one of the hallmarks of the cyberpunk genre is it kind of goes to dystopian but a very particular kind of dystopian like you would not call 1984 cyberpunk by any means it's all about like um corporations run amok uh where they are beyond the reach of the law or any state actors and they do what they will and that's how this game goes around they have the conspiracy theories that wind everything together but there's always that message of what the corporations are doing and how they're doing it to achieve their nefarious ends. You're right. Um, it, the difference, I think, between sort of a dystopia and a, or a, a classic dystopia and a cyberpunk is that it's the, the power of government, right? Um, cyberpunk almost always has, like, completely disempowered government where, like you said, the corporations are, are running wild and controlling everything. That's um, not to say it's all the be-all, end-all, but that definitely seems to be most common if I think about, like, what I've read of Gibson or Williams or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, it's kind of taking the idea that, you know, like any good science fiction, it takes ideas from the current day, present day, and extrapolates them into until it reaches an interesting question. And it takes a look at how powerful corporations are today and kind of turns that to 11. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting that cyberpunk is sort of getting a, a fresh breath with, uh, you know, 2020's current release of cyberpunk 2077. I don't know how relevant that's going to, that game will end up being further down the line as, um, you know, listeners of this podcast far in the future may, may hear, but it's interesting that as the world slides towards being an actual cyberpunk landscape, the, uh, the genre is picking up steam as well. <laughs> Finding another standard bearer for sure. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, turns out. But um, 
yeah, this game has uh, a lot of interesting writing in it and some some fairly likable characters that are often voiced in hilarious ways. Um, your deadpan uh, protagonist, J.C. Denton, sort of a schlubby Neo uh, being chief among them. You know, um, I think the story writing for this game was great. I think the dialogue writing for this game was pretty awful at times but in like the most hilarious b-movie kind of way like um there's this kid you meet at the beginning and he's like you're a cop but you are cool (laughs) and you know it's having voice actors from the 2000s before we really invested in good voice talent oh i i guarantee you most of these voice actors are just people from the next office over that they you know bought free lunch in order for them to do a line or two for their video game um, i think yeah, there was another most... line later on in the game i think around paris or so where there's a there's a um, you're shooting one of the head honchos in one of the conspiracies and his daughter's there too and she, after you shoot him she turns to you and says you killed my father beat <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh it, like you said the dialogue is is no great shakes and i think the the voice acting while sort of hilarious and campy and deadpan you know sometimes that works to great effects just because the whole game is you know full of ridiculous conspiracy theories sometimes that serves to enhance it for entertainment value's sake but um let's just say they're not winning any emmys with this one <laughs> and you know thinking talked a little bit about before about the kind of like a anthropological viewpoint of looking at the conspiracy theory culture back then. I think another thing you could look at is kind of like the hacker cool culture of the 90s. Um, Like uh, J.C. Denton wears sunglasses everywhere and long black trench coat. And I mean, like you see the same sort of thing in the Matrix. That's sort of like, this is what's stylish sort of thing. And it's interesting to see that here. No, I think I think uh neo from the matrix is a definite influence on jc and his brother paul who um you know both start off as sort of having the wool over their eyes and they're working for unatco and the man and then they find out that there's a conspiracy and go against them and they gotta uh, summon up all of their trench coats and go find out what's really going on (laughs) summon up the french trench coats oh you know what i uh matrix actually came out in 99 so it predates this game Hmm, interesting. Slightly. Although the the ideas were clearly like in the water at the time if this is being developed, you know, mm-hmm. being developed at the same time as the Matrix. Um there's some other characters too. I I think the ones that I uh remember most and uh made a biggest impact on me are Gunther, uh the obsolete angry German robot and uh Anna <laughs> Navarro, the other uh obsolete angry robot. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, these were um, mechanically augmented people, and your nanotechnology augments are superior to their gears and wires sticking out of their faces, and they resent you for this. Yeah, Gunther, especially, like, his arc as a character where he, like, starts off being sort of a hard-ass and resenting JC, uh, and then eventually just goes sort of total homicidal rage at him as he impotently tries to kill you uh, near the end of the game. Uh, it's it's a tragic arc to be honest but it's also like kind of funny just because he's got a hilarious german accent <laughs> i will take my rusty metal bones and sweep away into the junk pile excuse that i have forgotten your brother paul denton and the infinite power of nano augmentation i do believe the later deus ex sequels go more into his uh, storyline i think he's the character that shows up in the most deus ex games really so is he in like the the prequel games, the Deus Ex like Human Revolution that came out and or Deus Ex Mankind Divided that came out um you know, more recently. I think Human Revolution and Mankind Divided was a sequel to Human Revolution. Those came out what, like in the last ten years or so? Yeah, they came out in like twenty twelve or so, something like that. I think there were a number of direct sequels to Deus Ex. Um Invisible War, I think is one of them. Um I haven't played any of those. I did play Human Revolution. And I, I've got a couple of thoughts on that too, but um, yeah, this uh, I think he shows up, if you're talking about the direct sequels and maybe some of the more recent ones too, if you can call an eight-year-old game recent. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it, it is interesting that um, Deus Ex uh, finally got its like real sequel um, 
in Human Revolution. I thought it was pretty good. I liked the uh, sequel, but it, it's the weird thing about it is it's a prequel, right? Human Revolution takes place years and years before um, did the original Deus Ex. There were, you know, if we're, as long as we're on the topic here, there's two things that I I liked the game, but there were two things I didn't really forgive it for. Um, the first one was kind of like from a narrative thematic point of view, like the uh, one of the big questions about the game was like, what does it mean to be human, especially when some humans start getting augmented and get the getting these mechanical upgrades and becoming superhumans? Um, and I wanted to play my character as someone who did not want to get upgraded, but it was the only way to um, become more powerful in the game. That was how you leveled up was you did that, which fair point. It made its point about that pretty well. Uh, but the second thing, which I thought was worse was the level design was different. I hear it's because that there were two different companies that handled the regular levels and then the boss fights. So I try to play as a nerdy computer scientist hacker and the boss fights, they didn't care about that. They stomped all over you. Um, So I feel like it kind of betrayed the original spirit, which is like you can choose these different pathways and they're valid ways to do it in the newer one you got to pack some heat no i think that that's a good call out um i think that was eventually actually patched because there was such an outcry of that being so against the spirit of the original deus ex but yeah. to bring us back to that original deus ex um yeah maybe that warrants a playthrough huh um, <laughs> but um yeah to bring us back to the original deus ex uh to your point josh you don't ever have to kill these people like uh, gunther the angry german uh robot and anna navarro the other angry robot uh that you're you know sorry mechanical augment um i'm sure robots a slur in the future <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah you don't ever have to actually fight them if you're crafty enough and can get access to the right information you can discover their kill phrase mm-hmm. which uh is one of the coolest things i i think is that you can literally speak your enemies out of existence in this game uh, rather than having to draw uh, a gun mm-hmm. yeah very cyberpunk idea there itself We were talking a bit about the story and how it progresses and all the various characters and intertwining plots and conspiracies, but the way this actually unfolds to the player is in a series of missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start off working for the putative good guys, the UNATCO um, world government. If, you know, if you're in the 90s, world government is already throwing off conspiracy alarm bells. And turns out you're right, um, because you work for them for a little bit, and then you find out your brother, who also works for them, has gone rogue. And he convinces you to join his side. Uh, you unravel the conspiracies. You go to uh, go all, all around the world, do some globe hopping, uh, and then eventually end up at the, uh, I believe it's the corporate headquarters. No, you end up in Area 51 uh, to end the game. But yeah, it's uh, it takes you from the original... Uh, you know, first level in New York City uh, to Tokyo to France to um, a string of naval bases towards the later half of the game, and then finally to Area 51, where where everything ends. Uh, it's definitely they revisit several levels throughout the course of the game, as you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, Josh. You're revisiting Hell's Kitchen three different times in this game, and um, weirdly enough, you only spend one mission in the largest area of the game, which is Hong Kong. I'd call it two. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you're probably right. You're, you're kind of doing sort of a three-part mission in Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. it, it, that, to me, serves as sort of three different levels within one. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that Hong Kong is the crown jewel of this game. It uh, has the most different uh, locales. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of exploration aspect of it. And then embedded within it is sort of a more mission-based infiltration area. And uh, lots of sort of flavor text around the the edges, including my favorite, the uh, philosophical or political philosophy discussion with the bartender at the Lucky Money Club. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Hong Kong, I guess it was kind of uh, prescient a little bit, but uh, Hong Kong is taken over by the Chinese authorities back then in 2000. That was something that was kind of seen as like, oh, what's going to happen with that? Because I think 99 was when Britain or uh, signed over 
Hong Kong to the Chinese um, government with different stipulations. So this was, you know, Hong Kong was a hot topic back then. Um, and they're like, oh, in the future, it's going to be taken over. Um, and the bartender at the Lucky Money is more defensive of the Chinese autocratic style of government that is being portrayed, whereas um, J.C. Denton is defending the United States and democracy and all that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny, the merits of the various forms of statecraft taken by China versus the West. Uh, his line that I copied down, a system designed around the lesser qualities of men will only create these same qualities in its leaders. That could be plucked from the headlines today, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to follow this guy's Twitter account, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, I'm sure he'd be a hit these days. China is the last sovereign country in the world. Authoritarian but willing, unlike UN-governed countries, to give its people the freedom to do what they want. As long as they don't break the law. Listen to me. This is real freedom. Freedom to own property, make a profit, make your life. The West, so afraid of strong government, now has no government, only financial power. Our governments have limited power by design. Rhetoric? You believe it? Don't you know where these slogans come from? I give up. Well-paid researchers. How do you say it? Think tanks funded by big businesses. The separation of powers acknowledges the petty ambitions of individuals. That's its strength. A system organized around the weakest qualities of individuals will produce the same qualities in its leaders. Perhaps certain qualities are an inseparable part of human nature. The mark of the educated man is the suppression of these qualities in favor of better ones. The same is true of civilization. But um, yeah, the, the game sort of starts to bring you deeper and deeper into the various conspiracies as you start rubbing shoulders with Illuminati members and um, their um, underground war versus the um, rebel faction of the Illuminati called the Majestic Twelve. So you know, eventually you're making all of these sort of high profile characters and uh, eventually you're, you know, at the end of the game given a choice to side with uh, the Illuminati um, and we'll talk about the ending in a bit but there's a an interesting thing that goes into to the the ending of this game and how it plays out mm -hmm. uh, one thing I kind of liked uh, about the storyline was um, the Illuminati uh, the Illuminati is often portrayed as an all-powerful global cabal and in this game they were kind of like a little bit washed up like all the power had recently gone to this new group that they're like on the ropes a little bit and i thought that was an interesting characterization of you know not just imagining this this conspiracy theory is true but also like oh sucks to be them yeah it is it is interesting sort of subverts the idea of the illuminati as the pulling the strings on everything and uh turns out that they're in a uh, you know, a fight for their lives with the Majestic 12, who've recently sort of usurped a lot of their power. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, this is kind of like, this is before everyone got incredibly sick of these conspiracy theories after Dan Brown wrote all of his books in the early 2000s. Oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> Dan Brown was afterwards. Yeah, can you believe it? We're old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked a little bit about the open world of Hong Kong, uh, how you do a lot of exploration. I think one of the things that this game does well within its missions, all of its missions really, but writ large inside the open world ones, is uh, leaving breadcrumbs for you to follow. Like um, you might, uh, I'm thinking of Hell's Kitchen, uh, the original uh, open world area in the game. It has a bar you're supposed to go to, but if you go off a side street, you can go into this free clinic, and you can talk to some of the homeless people staying there, suffering under the plague, and get information from them, which kind of leads you down a side path, um, which is not even a place you'd have to go through to continue the story in the game, but it uh, leads you down these side paths, leads, opens up new ways to tackle a problem. Um, I, I think the key difference between what I call the open world and the linear levels is you're in the open world areas and you don't know how to do what you need to do. You know what you need to do, but you don't know how to do it. Whereas it's like infiltrate the submarine base. Okay, got it. I got to go here, blow up some ships. I got, I know what the goal is and I'm just going to navigate, choose paths around these different obstacles until I get to the um, goal, get to the goalpost. 
Yeah, the the open areas, as you say, I think could be better called discovery missions, right? Like you're going in and you're looking for information. And I think you're you're right to say that those areas are, they're my favorites as well, um, because that's where you get so much flavor and so much sort of allusion to future events that are going on and allusion to uh, events outside of the, the events of the game. Um, it's interesting that the whole game sort of follows the course of you chasing down a solution for this manufactured plague, the Grey Death, um, and the the perpetrators of it um, being these conspiracy groups, uh, Majestic 12, etc. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, as, we, as we grapple with our own uh, global disease, I don't think there's very many people that think it's manufactured, although I'm sure those folks are out there. Oh, yeah, they... <laughs> They do indeed exist. Um, yes, well, sadly. <laughs> that is depressing. Um, uh, maybe they shouldn't be playing the game right now. <laughs> it, it is weird to sort of play this game with 2020 vision where like, you know, as I was saying earlier, like conspiracy theories are a lot more sinister than they used to be and have a lot more oxygen, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It used to be the conspiracies were much more fringe than they are these days unfortunately yep yeah so i mean i guess uh, this i don't think this game has anything interesting to say about conspiratorial thinking per se but um it is uh sort of heartening to think back to a time when the gentler conspiracies existed Uh, one of the interesting things about this game for me was that this was the first first-person shooter that I saw combined with these RPG storytelling elements. Uh, hmm. I'm trying to think of another game I've played before that was a first-person shooter, and you had this, you go around and you talk to people kind of missions, these discovery things where you figure out what's going on. Um can you think of any games, contemporary games or otherwise, that you played before this that kind of introduced that this is a first-person shooter, but with dialogue? Yeah, I, I can't. I mean, there's probably an example out there. I'm thinking of some of those games I mentioned up top, um, like Half-Life, which had environmental storytelling, but I don't really remember this level of, of dialogue at all. Well, um, I'm, I'm even thinking the, like System Shock 2. I think was roughly contemporary. I'm not sure which way, but um, that was more like Bioshock. Bioshock, I think, was a very good spiritual successor to it, um, but it also wasn't the kind of game where you walked around and talked to NPCs. Um, there'd be a few characters, but it wasn't like you had just a town full of people you could go up and interrogate. No, I, th I think you're right. Um, I'm thinking the only other games were... I, this could possibly apply to is maybe the Elder Scrolls games. Maybe I was just like thinking, Daggerfall. Like, when did Morrowind come out? Oh, Morrowind was after that. That was 2003, oh, I okay. think. But Daggerfall um, was earlier. Daggerfall was 96, and that was not a first-person shooter. That was an RPG. Yeah. So um, I did not answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> So as you, uh, you know, continue to close out the various leads you have and uh, eventually chase down the leader of the G Majestic 12, Bob Page, who has a very CEO or senator name, depending on which flavor of evil white person your uh, fiction is, is taking these days. You know, I, but, <laughs> I always, um, I didn't read anything about this, but I always felt like he was supposed to be Bill Gatesy. Because if there's another thing about the 90s, it's that Microsoft is going to consume everything. And end up being the evil giga corporation overlord of us all. Yeah, software eats the world or whatever. Um, I remember those uh, those headlines as well, uh, even though I was quite young. But um, yeah, he is, uh, I, I believe, a corporate type. Um, 
I can't remember the exact things. There's prob there's definitely text in the game saying uh, what what organization he is the head of, but suffice it to say, he is the the person responsible for perpetrating this um, gray death thing for the Majestic Twelve, I believe. And uh, you chase him down to Area Fifty One, where he is trying to merge with an AI. Uh, AI, another thing we did not talk about in this game, but is heavily featured in it. Um, the AI he is attempting to merge with is called Helios, and by the end of the game, you are basically given three choices for how to deal with his attempting to merge with Helios in the final level. One is to uh, not allow him to do so, kill him, and join the Illuminati in controlling Helios, and you know basically rule the world alongside the Illuminati. Uh, Morgan Everett is the name of the Illuminati person. Or you can merge with Helios in Bob Page's place, uh, becoming sort of the god overlord of the world. Uh, and finally, there is the opportunity to destroy the entire um, uh, Area 51 facility, which just so happens to house the entire hub of all communications globally. Uh, in doing so, you would effectively send the world back into the Dark Ages with no uh, international communications of any kind. Because we all know that if you don't have Twitter... The first thing you're going to do is grab a rock and start hitting things with it. That's right. Twitterism or barbarism is uh, the aphorism. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's sort of, like we said, it's a fairly like sort of silly and, and rote choice. But I think the interesting thing about how it plays out is the game doesn't just ask you to like pick that in three different dialogue options. There's three very different mechanical things you have to do in the game, you know, destroy certain things in the facility or... Um, gather certain materials and apply them here, there, or the other thing to make these things happen. They're asking you to mechanically make the choice by doing things in the environment, not just push one of three buttons. It always makes it feel a little more visceral when a game has you do things instead of um, just selecting a dialogue option, which one you want. There's that kind of a saying in cinematography, show, don't tell. I think there's a analog for video games um it's more like do don't show right yeah don't show well yeah don't i guess showing and telling is about the same thing in video games but yeah do don't show Mm mm-hmm yeah and i i totally agree and i think this game realized that probably before most people did and uh recognized the strength of the medium and its ending um it is interesting that they sort of say, like, all right, you can join the Illuminati and have more uh, neoliberal capitalism, merge with Helios, and uh, become a benevolent dictator, or barbarism. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly there's some other options, right? <laughs> no, nah, nah, I don't think so. Well, I guess that's the same thing about uh, it, too. Like, you hear um, that photography is a very biased medium and that the photographer is deciding where to point the camera and where not to point the camera same thing with game design you're deciding what options to illuminate and which which ones are not available mm-hmm. yeah and this you know clearly having more than three choices here would have just been overwhelming for the player so <laughs> <laughs> i guess uh we we got what we got um another interesting thing is that each ending has its own quote from a philosopher or uh, the like, you know, John Milton, Voltaire, uh, Cahil Gibran. It's, you know, it's cool. The game sort of has this philosophical bent running through it from the drunken conversations with bartenders to debates with Illuminati members. And uh, I like that they sort of kept that, um, that theme, that sort of uh, tacked alive right up until the end. They're not afraid uh, to quote uh, French philosophy at you. Although I would say it was a little, like you said, it's um, the three options available at the end of the game were fairly biased in the worldview they represent. and the, So the philosophy might be a little light in the game, but they did lean into it. They wanted to be the thinking man's first person shooter. Exactly. How many games at this time are doing that, right? I mean... This is the 2000s. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite the 90s, but um, it is. It's interesting to me, and I think we we probably said the same thing uh, when we did uh, Planescape Torment as uh, one of our early uh, non-recorded book clubs. You know that it's grappling with subject matter that wouldn't be touched in video games for years later, and I think uh, definitely 
cool to see uh, at least some uh, shrift given to the idea that you should have to think while playing this game. They don't just spell out exactly what needs to be done and how it should turn out. They're asking you to think about it and make a decision. A little bit of a puzzler mixed in with your first-person shooter. And yeah, you're right, you know, I might um, I might see the game's philosophy as a little adolescent these days, but uh, you gotta consider where the game was and what else was going on in the game market at the time, too. And it was a step forward back then. So one thing I think was not a step forward, which I kind of see this game as emblematic of, um, was art style. Uh, I feel like, I don't think, I don't want to necessarily say this game kicked off this whole movement, but I feel like it was very much towards the beginning of it. You know, maybe even the success of this game gave this whole movement some headwind. But the idea of realism, quote unquote, in video games, and specifically realism being like black and dull and gray and earth colors and not having a lot of i don't know not not having a lot of color not having a lot of high saturation stuff going on uh, but the idea that the more brown you can stick in your video game the more realistic it is which makes it better than things like nintendo who use cartoon <laughs> stuff and they're for kids this is for a mature audience you can tell because of the amount of brown we have in it um i think the worst offender quote unquote it was a great game but gears of war you know it was a good looking game but that art style i just i, I just it's hard to uh it, it makes it a little more difficult to pick it up now especially when there's a lot of things game designers have learned they've learned to employ color theory in a lot of interesting ways like um things like lighting to show with the player where they should be going to direct the player's attention they did not have that in this game it was just like oh we're gonna light the things we think should be lit instead of making it an intentional sort of thing um but this game was kind of like this is the more realistic way to, to portray things so we're gonna do it yeah yeah it's it's realistic and i i agree that i also sort of balk at the um idea of the only colors that can be in your gritty game are gray and brown um, <clears throat> this is definitely a very gray game. Um, there's some parts of it where it, it breaks out of that. Like I'm thinking of a, a late game sort of escape that you're doing where you run through sort of a large sort of power plant system and everything's brilliantly blue and, uh, electricity sparking everywhere. It's, it's interesting that there's these parts of the game that are so alive and neon and cyberpunk, you know, cause mm -hmm. cyberpunk and neon to me go hand in hand oh, and other parts where it's like, well, we're portraying the banality of evil here, so everything is beige and gray. <laughs> the banality of beige. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my uh, three-word review. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you on that. The art style in this game, it was I don't think it was particularly pretty even for its time. The character models are sort of hilariously blocky and ugly and... Um, very low res on um, facial expressions and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it was 2000. I feel like the graphics were good for the time, especially for a game that was four years under development. No? They were specifically not good for the time. No. Um, that, was, that was acknowledged. Well, what's uh, a contemporary? Diablo 2, The Sims, Majora's Mask, Tony Hawk 2, Baldur's Gate 2. Um, so maybe none of those have good, like, examples of facial features. Yeah, but there's better examples of art direction for sure. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. So the and the hilarious thing is this game did have mod support. So nowadays you can download a HD texture pack where you get all of this beautiful high definition art on a lo-fi polygon, and it still looks like ass. Oh, I even like the level design. Um, you know, that's a I, I, I don't know. It's it's. Maybe not fair of me to critique them for their obsession with realism, quote-unquote, in one way, and be like, oh, here's my own definition, which is superior. But the levels in this game were, at some times, they were hilariously large. Like, um, 
I'm thinking of the tracer tongue compound in Hong Kong you go into and it's like, oh, here's a secret passage. You got to go a half mile down this hallway and then you turn right and then you go into this gigantic dormitory, which ha- which is like, um, you know, I, maybe <laughs> part of this is because I'm living in a 500 square foot house right now, but I'm like, damn, there's just maybe a hundred square feet of open space in the middle, not doing anything. And it's, it's just like, okay, the level design in this game, I think could have, I don't know if they would have missed anything by getting a little tighter. No, I, I hear you. I think that is kind of hilarious that, uh, are we sure Tracer Tong's not a member of the Illuminati given that he owns like several acres in the middle of the most expensive real estate market on the planet? Uh, <laughs> time you will tell. Know. You never know. <laughs> oh, but then it's like what you were talking about. You get a mod on and it puts high-res art on these low-polygon models. It's just like, you can do the mod, but there's... It can reskin things, but there are certain things about how the game is set up, how the levels are set up, that won't matter if you reskin it or not. One might say the beauty is only skin deep. <laughs> At any rate, I think with that, uh, it's a good time for us to roll into some three word reviews. My three-word review is Swiss Army Nanoblade. If most games give you the knife in so much as they're a power fantasy where you kill your enemies, Deus Ex gives you the corkscrew, the screwdriver, and even the tiny magnifying glass. It's a full Swiss Army knife of options that you can use to tell uh, your JC's story. And most hearteningly, it lets you outsmart your opponents for the most part instead of gunning them down. Uh, I think the legacy of this game as a precursor to immersive sims like Dishonored is a strong one and something to be celebrated despite the shortcomings and rough edges that we've talked about. Uh, This genre had a pretty strong resurgence over the last decade with the work from Arcane Studio and others, but I don't see many of this game's lineage coming on the horizon. Here's hoping there's someone to pick up the reins and usher in a new age of immersive sims, because I love these games and I love the way they let you play the way you want to play. Uh, This game is a big thumbs up for me uh, now as it was. Gosh, it wasn't 20 years ago I played it, but probably 15 or so. Um, Big big thumbs up for me. My three-word review for this game was Explore, Plan, Execute. Uh, This game was very good as like that immersive sim genre Ryan was talking about, how you are playing the game you want to play. Uh, I'd like to break that down even a little better. Or, sorry. I would like to break that down even a <laughs> little... <laughs> yeah, fuck your three-word review. <laughs> Actually, I really liked your three-word review. I was thinking of just going back to the early um, early days of, po- of our quote-unquote podcast when we uh, sometimes agreed on a three-word review. I had to... I, I would go and... I would pick yours out. I like that Swiss Army Nano... But I would like to dive a little deeper into Brian's characterization of that. Um, you play the way you want, but you have to do this certain uh, loop in order to go through the game. You explore the level, you find the breadcrumbs, whether it's the open world levels or whether it's uh, a small linear mission. There's always some breadcrumbs to find about a different way around things. Uh, find a vent hidden behind some boxes or find some officer's log you can read to get a password and find some more information out um you explore around you figure out where the manipulation points are on the level where what you can do where and how and then you come up with your plan and you put it into action and sometimes that execute plan involves executing some mofos from 500 (laughs) feet with a sniper rifle amen Um, And sometimes it involves speaking them out of existence with their kill phrase. (laughs) Um. That was a cool moment, for sure. (laughs) Indeed. Well, for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on hacking.
for a game that I enjoyed the hacking with, um, the hacking wasn't really a subsystem like it was in System Shock or Bioshock or a thousand other games that do a little mini game to go along with hacking. Yeah, and I don't think it was worse for it, really. No. Like, I didn't miss the little Pipe Dream hacking mini game that they put in the later uh, iterations. I thought I thought it was fun, but yeah, it was like um, I don't I don't know. This was another like '90s term. You, you've uh, have you heard of ICE before? ICE, like when you hacked into a computer in this game, it was your ice breaker. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's another trope of the '90s cyberpunk genre. ICE was internal countermeasures electronique, or some French thing like that. Uh, but really, it was something that sounded cool. Uh, and then the hackers would do their ice breaker to get past these uh, security systems over here. Uh, so it wasn't so much that they liked ICE, it's that they liked saying, this is our ice breaker. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, kids trying to sound cool and look cool, which is kind of how I think about the trench coat and sunglasses style a little bit. It's kind of how I think about all of the 90s, really. <laughs> That's a good way to sum it up. Good way to sum it up. Yeah.